Welcome to the CEC report for the 17th of November 2017. I'm Elisa Barwick. Joining me today is CEC leader Craig Isherwood. Welcome, Craig. Yeah, thanks, Lisa. And good news on the show today. Interim victory on bail-in bill. Now let's crush it. And secondly, today we'll cover TPP revolt frustrates imperial schemes for Asia-Pacific. So firstly, interim victory on bail-in bill, now let's crush it. So we had a very important, uh, albeit uh, momentary victory or interim victory for the time being, but a very important one nonetheless on mm. defeating the APRA emergency powers legislation, which is what the, the powers the Treasury wants to give our regulator, the Australian Prudential Regulation Authority, that if there is a financial crisis, they would have really unspecified powers, which is the problem with this legislation, to potentially uh, confiscate deposits of the depositor and the individual citizen to save the bank. Yeah, and this goes back to uh, what we've said all along, Elisa, back to 2013, where the CEC rang the alarm bells that there was quote-unquote legislation in train to bring in bail-in into Australia. Now bail-in, for those of our viewers who don't understand what bail-in is, this is the legislation that's been brought into Europe, into Italy, to Spain and places like that where governments allow, uh, are allowed to step in and literally take people's deposits, mm -hmm. which are usually considered sacred, right, and protected. Mm. But in what has happened is under the idea that banks are too big to fail, Banks, the banking system has to be protected at all costs. The, the stability of the system has to be preserved at all costs. Then what has to, they have to be bailed. There's not going to be any more public bailouts in the system. Therefore, depositors are going to be the ones who have to be yeah, the, the, the last resort. So people have their deposits stolen. Now, that legislation in 2013, right, we warned people back then. We created a massive campaign. We had... Uh, full-page advertisements in the Australian. We published the New Citizen newspaper, hundreds of thousands of copies. Now, we suppressed that legislation, but now it's popped up mm -hmm. in this form of this, uh, this emergency powers for the APRA. Mm -hmm. And now we've been able to force it into committee. Yeah, it was, it was kept, we must stress, it was kept very hush-hush. But our campaign drew enough attention to it, had enough politicians worried that it has now been thrown to uh, the economics, Senate Economics Legislation Committee. Now that basically sidelines it for the next three months. It means that there's no danger of it being voted on prior to that three-month evaluation after which a report back is due uh, by that committee on the 9th of February next year. But it does require immediate action now from the viewers that have been acting on this. We'll come to that in a minute. Yes, um, there's only one thing we need you to do, so it'll be very straightforward. But firstly, just to specify um, what the committee is going to be looking at, the Hansard actually listed the reasons um, for the referral to the committee, the principal issues for consideration, um, which is very important. It says that they want to understand exactly what capital instruments are covered by the bill. And this is because of us, because we've uh, stated as on last week's show, that the capital instruments could include deposits if because APRA would have the freedom to basically specify what they consider as capital. Uh, secondly, it says to understand what consultation process APRA would be required to undertake before making determinations under the bill. Can they just do whatever they want, etc. Uh, thirdly, to understand what power the executive and or parliament is ceding to APRA, very important. 
and finally to understand the possible implications to market concentration in the banking sector. So um, as you can see, this is actually a very crucial battle. Now, to win the war, the overall war uh, beyond this, this battle, uh, this Economic Committee will be taking submissions and they are due by the 18th of December. So the one thing that we need all viewers and CEC supporters and get your friends and family to do the same, we need to generate a very large number so it's very clear that if this were to go through, those politicians would risk losing their seats at a forthcoming election which might be sooner than they think. So what, the way to make a submission is you can go to the Australian Parliament House website. Just put in aph.gov.au and if you type into their search engine at the top right, Crisis Resolution Powers, the first link that comes up will take you to uh, the page showing you how to make a submission. All you need to do basically is write a short letter saying can this legislation and go with Glass-Steagall bank separation which Craig can explain in a moment instead. Uh, for more information if you want to give them a bit more of a serve which you're welcome to go to our press release which laid out three crucial questions uh, that each politician should consider and every member of the Senate committee will receive uh, all the submissions that are made. So this is important that they see these questions. Uh, so you can go to our website, right at the top you'll see a link to that press release. Um, so this is what we need these politicians to be hit with and we've just got one month to do Look, it. Look, it's very clear at least, the issue is not this APRA bill. This APRA bill, if it's passed, is simply another tool to entrust uh, an organisation that is run, organised and so-called governs the banking system to control the banking system, or the so-called you know, so-called control the banking system, which is all right. Look, this banking system is proven to be a criminal banking enterprise, right? Look what it's done to people. So he, people are going to be, you know, fed to the, you know, like foxes in the hen house. Mm. What we need is something completely different politically. We need Glass-Steagall. We need to separate out all the speculative gambling type banking operations, all the, the things that have caused the problem in the first place by having Glass-Steagall. We need to have a legitimate uh, commercial banking operation, just normal banking, boring banking, separated out from all of this and thoroughly protect that and everything else like your merchant investment banking, separate out. That's what Glass-Steagall is all about. Mm -hmm. It's very simple. So instead of trying to have legislation that is governing this, this, this corrupt and criminal enterprise that we've seen happen before, and we don't we can talk about the Commonwealth Bank and its money laundering you know, through the ATMs, and we can talk about what's happening in Westpac. We can go through it ad nauseum, all of this mm. stuff. That's it's already proven. What we need is to protect a legitimate banking system through Glass-Steagall and be proactive about protecting that first and foremost and let all this other stuff take mm. its course. Yep. And that's what we need to do. People need to, need to get in and make submissions about what we need is Glass-Steagall first and mm. foremost. And if the politicians decide they're going to try and protect the system by going down this law, this pathway of creating this law to give APRA these sorts of powers, then they're protecting this criminal system. Mm -hmm. And that's the political... Uh, uh, you know, baggage that mm. they're going to have to wear. Yep. And I think the Greens have got this, you know, they've got yeah. this in spades. They understand um, to some degree what they're actually up, you know, what, what's, what this bill means. Mm. Now, and on this question of APRA protecting the banks, um, Greg Medcraft, the departing 
uh, ASIC chairman raised this this week actually, which is interesting, just as he left the country, he lobbed a bomb, left it, you know, rolling. Um, he, you know, affirmed what we've been saying, that APRA puts banks ahead of their customers. And this is what he said, he was talking about ASIC and APRA and how they work together. He said, we cooperate very well at the top level, but I think sometimes there's an obvious potential conflict between the role of APRA and the role of ASIC. The role of APRA is to protect the entity, the bank, and ASIC's role is to protect consumers and investors. Sometimes what may be good for an entity and its profitability and its soundness may not be particularly good for consumers and investors. That's exactly what I just said. I mean, mm -hmm. APRA is protecting the fox. Yeah, exactly. ASIC's protecting the hens. Yeah. I mean, for goodness sake, what sort of model is that in the first place? Yeah. So everyone knows this. He's only game to say it when he just leaves, ups and leaves the country in his job. Um, but previously, of course, we reported on the show, he re revealed the dangers of hybrid or bail-in bonds, which we've talked about before, where um, you buy bonds in the bank that are converted into shares during a financial crash, which people are not adequately informed of. And he's warned that they are a ticking time bomb. And the other thing which shows the momentum against the banks, which just came out in today's news, is a new push for a Royal Commission, which is interesting because 10 Conservative, Liberal and National MPs are unhappy that they didn't get the promised party debate on the same-sex marriage legislation. So basically, as a retribution, uh, they're saying, OK, we're going to put forward a Senate bill for a banking royal commission. It would be co-sponsored by the Nationals, the Labor Party, the Greens and Senate crossbench parties. So meaning it would easily pass the Senate. And they've also said that they uh, think it could, e it, well, not easily, but it could, with two people crossing the floor, pass in the House of Representatives because you have two by-elections taking place, so two of the regulars that are out of the job. So things are getting very interesting. Well, at least this could collapse the entire parliament. I mean, if the banks get that desperate, they could say, OK, this is enough, we're going to have another election. Mm. And that might, who knows how this is yeah. going to work out because this is the uncertain nature of politics mm -hmm. at the moment. Yep because it is driven not by the internal machinations of internal Australian politics, but the fact that we're dealing with a global mm. financial crisis mm -hmm. here that hasn't been solved. Yep. You're dealing with massive external debts, derivatives, problems and so forth. And, you know, the real solution here, as you've seen with the instability in Australian politics, is that both the political parties are no longer seen as relevant mm -hmm. for governing in what we call the general welfare of the Australian population. Yep. There's no long-term aims for the development of our country. There's no long-term development projects that take Australia and say, OK, how are we going to look at the next 50 years? Like, for example, China is doing right now. There's no, in a sense, confidence into the future based upon looking at the current raft of leaders. Everything comes down to, actually, when you think about it, protecting the current status quo, yeah. protecting the, the banking system. With this, you've seen the entire collapse of our manufacturing system. People have watched in the last three months the collapse of our manufacturing system, specifically in the shutdown of our former magnificent manufacturing, uh, high-tech manufacturing sector in the car industry, right? And people are saying, well, what the heck is our country doing? Yeah. Well, can't we produce anything in this country? Mm. And this is the, uh, the, 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 the drivers behind the scenes that our current crop of politicians that are supporting free trade and this globalisation, economic rationalism, and the policies of the last 40 years that have brought us to this point, uh, this current crop of politicians is being found wanting. Yep. And that's what they're responding to. Yep. Now, we've got to take a quick break, but we'll keep talking about this right after this. Mm -hmm. 
welcome back to the CEC Report where we're discussing TPP revolt frustrates imperial schemes for Asia Pacific. And just for more information, and particularly if you need, if you've got any questions on how to put a submission into this Senate inquiry on the APRA bill, just give us a call on our toll-free number. And also, you, if you haven't already, you can request a free copy of our weekly publication, the Australian Alert Service, in which you can find out a lot more background to everything we discuss on the show. Now, um, the Asia-Pacific and the TPP, it's not all about the TPP. Uh, in fact, I'm going to come back to the TPP and what's happening with that in a moment. But um, the point here is that uh, with this, this campaign to stop the APRA bill, we are intersecting a much bigger drive because the, by some of the most powerful financial institutions in the world because the current global financial system, which has been referred to as an informal financial empire, is collapsing. And so what we're seeing is that the powers uh, from the City of London and Wall Street are being exerted in new ways. Uh, and part of that is through top-down dictatorial controls like the bail-in legislation. And the other side of it is top-down police state control, which is justified by the increasing terrorism. Um, but as we know, and we've said on the show, and we've documented extensively, terrorism is not um, the, the more dangerous terrorism is, is not incidental, it doesn't just pop up organically. It is sponsored at the highest levels, particularly by uh, operations run out of the City of London and Saudi Arabia um, with other help. So that's what we're going to look at today because there is an alternative, uh, not just financial order, but economic order that is being pushed by China in particular and its collaborators. Uh, through the BRICS, for example, um, Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa, and through nearly a hundred countries that have agreed to cooperate with China on its Belt and Road Initiative to collaborate and work together to uplift the planet and rebuild poverty-stricken areas with development and with infrastructure. Um, so we're going to look a little bit at uh, Trump's, President Donald Trump's trip into Asia and how that affects uh, the drive for what is essentially to be um, a shift from the transatlantic region by the Wall Street City of London forces into the Pacific because basically with all this motion unfurling in the Pacific they need to get in on it, they mm. need to control mm. it top down. Um, or so try to. Or try to, exactly, and they're not really uh, succeeding in the way that they would like. And the TPP is an example of that. Yeah. But Trump's trip into Asia, he of course went to Japan, South Korea, uh, China, and then of course visited Philippines and Vietnam for the APEC and the ASEAN and East Asia forums. And most of the meetings were quite good, but I'll just mention the interactions with the Chinese President Xi Jinping, because bringing together America and China would be the most critical thing, along with Russia. And Trump did stress actually on the question of North Korea in particular, that China and Russia are the most important partners with America to bring peace to the region. So that's crucial. Uh, America itself, there were uh, several dozens of leaders of companies that went uh, with Trump and the delegation to meet with Chinese officials and they did some major deals. Um, General Electric, for example, is going to work with two Chinese energy companies on Belt and Road projects and Westinghouse is going to be engaged to build six nuclear power plants in China. So there's you know, quite a number of positive things that are brewing there. On the negative side, there's a push, and you might have heard about it in the media and not known what it was, for what's known as a quadrilateral dialogue. This is a security dialogue between the US, Japan, Australia uh, and um, India. 
And um, this is something that existed briefly in 2007 mm -hmm. and then Rudd basically pulled out of it because the Chinese are not that keen on it. They seen it as, see it as an anti-Chinese action. Um, so Trump and Turnbull and Abe met on this. Uh, India wasn't in that meeting, but there was a meeting of senior officials of all four countries that did take place on the sidelines of the East Asia Summit. Now, I'll say that Trump himself didn't make any actual pronouncements about this. It was all White House statements. Um, the statement after the meeting of the senior officials talked about, and this is what it's aimed at, of course, um, uh, having open seas in the region. Um, stress, they stressed freedom of navigation and the rule of law. So it is basically part of the drive to contain China and the um, head of the Australian National University Security College, Rory Medcalf, openly said in the Australian Financial Review that what this alliance is about is about Australia, Japan and India ganging up on, on Trump mm -hmm. to make sure he takes a more confrontational approach to China. But I will say it is premature to believe that this will work because Trump is a wild card and he doesn't believe everything that the White House puts out in its statements. No, you can't. That's the thing about Trump, you can't actually predict what he's going to do. And again, look, this is such a, develop, you know, such a dynamic region, it's very hard to say what's going to happen here, but this is a reaction against the dynamism of the Belt and Road Project of China. They're trying yeah. to contain China, but it's not going to work, at least because the, the, the West, is, West financial system is collapsing. Yeah. This is a total reaction to that. Yep. And after this short break, we'll talk about the TPP. Welcome back to the CEC Report where we're discussing imperial plans for the Asia-Pacific that are not really gaining traction. So the TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, is an example of that which was on again, off again over the weekend of the ASEAN and East Asia summits. Um, of course, Malcolm Turnbull, our Prime Minister, was heavily pushing for this. It was he and the Japanese Prime Minister Abe that pushed to get all the TPP leaders together to try to get some motion on this, which of course has frozen since Trump pulled out of it. Um, and it was over the course of the weekend rather interesting because um, it, was, it was a done deal basically that all the leaders had agreed in principle, but then there was a meeting on the Friday night at which the uh, Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau didn't show up and all the other leaders were quite angry about this. Um, anyway, afterwards they managed to pull together another agreement. However, it's virtually unrecognisable Dozens of the most controversial clauses were suspended on things like pharmaceutical rules, intellectual uh, property and labour rights, uh, the ability of foreign corporations to sue national governments, etc. And there were four provisions that were not included at all in the treaty arrangement um, because no cons consensus could actually be reached on it. Um, and it's funny now in retaliation, it looks like Turnbull and others are not going to support Canada's wish to join the East Asia Forum. Although I will say there were other countries, including New Zealand and others, that also disputed a lot of these clauses. So it's all been stripped out for the time being, but there's no knowing where it'll go. No. Lisa, Lisa the issue here is um, what we call liberalism or neoliberalism. Now, you hear a lot about it. You know, we had these neoliberalism reforms coming to Australia in the 80s through Hawke and Keating. Now, liberalism, free trade, all the same thing. These TPP are part of a package of these neoliberalism uh, economic reforms, which are basically policies that go back to the idea of old liberalism. 
which is the old idea of the British mm -hmm. East, Indies, East Indies free trade. Now, unfortunately, most people don't understand this. But neoliberalism means new liberalism. Why does it have to be new? Is because the old liberalism was slavery. It was the opium trading of the old British East India Trump, uh, Company of the of the British Empire. In fact, right now, these are people like Adam Smith or Jeremy Bentham. Yeah, these are people for Jam and it's really interesting. You know, Jeremy Bentham wrote um, in defence of usury. And what what are we dealing with here? We're dealing with basically people who treat human beings as, as, as animals. And I find it absolutely fascinating, like in the, United, in, in the United Kingdom, in the UK, you've got people like Jeremy Corbyn that are coming forward demanding the nationalisation of real industries and so forth. And you've had a, an outbreak of this movement calling for the protection of uh, people and of the, uh, the, uh, the, the, the nationalisation of industries. And just recently with these Paradise Papers, you've seen this entire, uh, you know, breaking opening of this, this tax haven mm. stuff, right? And the Queen's yep. been caught in it. Yep. And Jeremy Corbyn has come, it was asked a question recently, we've got a video clip of this. Yeah, we'll just show it. Mr Corbyn, should the Queen apologise for her private estate making offshore investments as revealed in the Paradise Papers? Well, anyone that is um, putting money into tax havens in order to avoid taxation in Britain, and uh, obviously investigations have to take place, should do two things, not just apologize for it, but also recognize what it does to our society. Because if uh, a very wealthy person wants to avoid taxation in Britain and therefore put money into a tax haven somewhere, who loses? Schools, hospitals, housing, all those public services lose, and the rest of the population have to pay to cover up the uh, deficit uh, created by that. And so I think the Paradise Papers, which I've been reading through, on the, like all of us this morning, are quite shocking. And I did raise some of these issues at Prime Minister's Question Time last week. And uh, we will obviously be raising the issue in Parliament. And uh, John MacDonald spoke about it this morning. And there needs to be an immediate public inquiry. The sim we simply have to challenge the culture that there's something clever about avoiding taxation. Taxation is what gives us ambulances, gives us fire tenders, gives us safety in our lives. And we all have a responsibility to pay for it. And you know what? It undermines every one of us, every one of us here who pays our taxes properly and diligently. We're undermined by this kind of evasion. It must stop. And then the Shadow Chancellor, um, uh, John McDonnell, he said that the Corbyn government would enforce moral responsibilities upon society's wealthiest strata uh, through proper reforms, forcing publication of all the beneficiaries of trusts, etc. So the old system's sinking, Craig. People don't want it. Well, Elisa, I think many of the Australian people don't understand what's happened in the last 40 years to them. Who brought these neoliberalism policies of selling off our infrastructure, of privatising everything, where we were, whereby we've had to put up with rising electricity? Prices. Who did this to us? Mm. Well, these neoliberalism reforms have been done by an organisation, a secret organisation, and over the next several weeks we'll be doing, we'll be covering that on the CEC report, mm. so people should look out for that. Yeah, so stay tuned for more and don't forget to call us for more information. So thanks, Craig. Yeah, thanks, and Lisa. And thanks for tuning in to the CEC report, and we'll see you at the same time, same place next week.